Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm again here with my lovely co-host Michelle. Hi Michelle. Hi Stephanie. Uh, apologies for my voice today, I have a bit of a cold, um, but I'm very excited to um, introduce our next guest who is a colleague of ours in the Department of English and that's Dr. Geoffrey Payne who is a, like me, a specialist in the literature of the 18th century and he's currently working on a project on solitude and social networks in the 18th century. So hi Jeff. Hi Steph. And the reason that we asked Jeff here today is because both Jeff and I have written about and taught Jane Austen extensively and that's very timely because on the 18th of July it'll be 200 years since Jane Austen tragically died a quite early death um, on 18th of July 1817. So today we thought we'd talk about all things Jane Austen and I thought I'd start with why we still love Jane Austen or at least why all of us here in this room love Jane Austen. So why do you love Jane Austen, Geoffrey? Well, Steph, um, look, it, for me it comes down just to very simply I love reading her, her style. It's something about the style of Jane that just draws you in. I, I actually put this very same question to a tutorial of third-year students yesterday, and a number of them came up with this idea that you know the reason that Jane Austen continues to appeal to people today is because of the irony, because of the humour, um, and that just comes through so wonderfully in the way that she writes. Um, and in things which are so seemingly frivolous or trivial, like in, in something very simple, such as the beginning of Pride and Prejudice, right? Yeah. That opening line of Pride and Prejudice, um, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune must surely be in want of a wife, um, is at the one hand so straightforward and simple, but it's so complicated in terms of the, the levels of the humour, mm -hmm. right? You know, um, it's obviously not true. It appears that nobody actually believes it, but everybody kind of does, but it is true at the same time. And uh, th those kinds of puzzles just, I don't know, just really draw, draw me in. And, and, and that permeates all, all, of, all of the books. She's just so clever on a sentence-by-sentence sentence level. There is nobody cleverer than Jane Austen. Her sentences are all beautiful. Um, her it's funny, it retains its its humour. And whenever I think about this question, I think about that scene very early on in Sense and Sensibility where um, Fanny Dashwood is arguing um, her way out of giving um, the Dashwood sisters money. Yeah. yeah. And she keeps cutting down what they are going to be given out of the will to what's going to be given to Eleanor and Marianne progressively where it starts off with you know 500 pounds a year and she ends up giving them some plates um <laughs> and she it, it's such a beautiful piece of humor and it's so clever and it's just dialogue but it tells you everything you need to know about that character and the other line that kind of stands out when i think of why i love jane austen is there's a line in pride and prejudice about mary bennett and all it is is she wanted to know she wanted to say something clever but she did not know how and that just tells you <laughs> everything you need to know about that character. She wanted to say something clever, but didn't know how. That's all we need in terms of characterization. So why do you love Jane Austen, Michelle? Look, do you know, I, I think listening to you uh, discuss the brilliance of, of Austen is, is actually just, it, it's like a bath and it's kind of washing over yeah. me. And, and I think that that's one of the 
experiences of Austin because because that humour is is both subtle and yet so pointed because it's so profoundly layered your experience is incredibly immersive I think you know on on, on that level where every uh, sort of network in your brain is sort of working so hard to decode that you really lose yourself in an Austin world in the way that you don't lose yourself in in so much of the writing that's about today Mm. And, and I think that particularly today where you know sort of everything seems to be done at such a a frenetic pace and if you're not sort of slapped over the face fairly quickly you're out and you're on to something else uh there is something profoundly um meditative and uh regenerative about sitting down with austin Mm. Um, I always I, say that, that it's like it's like entering a warm bath. It's like you know exactly where you are, you know exactly what kind of world you're entering into, you know it's going to be funny, you know it's going to be satisfying, you know it's going to be clever. It's just, the, the books continue. I mean, I must have read each of them, you know, God only knows how many times, but I know I'm going to be fine when I... When I mean, I there's got to be an element, of, element of nostalgia in the appeal yeah. as well, doesn't there? Yeah, it you does. Know, um, because it is not only personally familiar but socially familiar yeah. it, it speaks of a world that for all of its differences is still essentially the world that we all inhabit yeah it's recognizable um, yeah. and it's a not it's it's presented in a way where threats are there but they're um managed yes. and manageable yes and so you know th- those things kind of also help appeal yeah. but also you know th- so so there's intellectual appeal because there are ways in which you could tease at it and you can work beyond the apparent surface idealism of the texts. Um, but also, if you just want to sit back and let it wash over you, you can just sort of get caught up in the narrative. And, and, and in the beautiful the, language. The beautiful like language I said, on the sentence-by-sentence yeah. level, it's so beautiful that you, you just, it's just easy to just marvel at each perfect sentence. And I, and I don't think that you can possibly ignore how profoundly, um, you know, sort of, satisfying it is to have uh, a sort of a, a, a romance where uh, where things work out and yet you don't feel as though it's it, it's been uh, sort of cliched or or, or, or or superficial or um, in, in, in some sense um, belittled mm. and, and yet you, you know there is something reassuring about that uh, sort of that coming together yeah uh, which is 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 I think it, it, it's sort of almost um, profoundly part of, of 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 nature, isn't it? You know, like mm. that, that she sort of tapped into a time where you know really marriages were so contractual. You know, where where you know sort of in 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 some sense women couldn't have been sort of more or less you know sort of chattel in so many respects. And, and yet we sort of have that both acknowledged and yet also complicated, mm. um, which, which I think is, is, takes real brilliance mm. to be able to bring off because, you know, she's not casting aside the very real, you know, sort of um, constraints of, of the time that she's, that she's writing. She's, she's working with them and, and still sort of managing to give us um, a, 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 a sort of subversive element because her 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 characters, her women characters, are in, indeed you know sort of so profoundly sort of psychologically and emotionally complex and rich. Yes. Mm. 
and I think that's why you know people characters like Elizabeth Bennet continue to to speak to us so profoundly because they seem so recognizable and I think that's why Jane Austen has the kind of cultural place she has in terms of the history of literature because these are characters that are psychologically as rich as as any you'll ever see on the page and and it's quite early in the history of the novel to have that kind of psychological depth and richness people had done that before but not quite to the extent that that Austen had Look, I still remember reading Sense and Sensibility for the first time in high school and being so shocked to discover that, that, that Fanny was past it at the ripe old age of 26. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet also how quickly, uh, you, uh, uh, how quickly I was able to take on that um, sort of evaluation of Fanny in her sort of looking rather drawn and pa- pallid from all of her 26 years on the planet and looking a bit dry and, and past it in so many respects and how quickly you, you sort of assume those, those, those sort of values and how quickly that becomes a sort of a point of tension in, in, in the story. Is it possible that, yes, she could really and truly make Wentworth fall in love with her, even at the age of 26, you know? So there's a, so that, You mean persuasion? Yeah, persuasion, yes. thank you. Persuasion. Um, you know, where you <laughs> have that... Oh, yes, thank you. Um, but where you have that moment where you actually profoundly wonder whether or not um, it is possible for her to to sort of blossom again. Yeah. Which, mm. which you know, and that word is very choice because I think all of those descriptions of the way she colours and she starts to colour yeah. as, you know, sort of um, the, the tensions between she and Wentworth uh, and the, um, the connections between she and, and Wentworth begin to um, flower. I think that's the most purely romantic of Austen's novels, Persuasion. That that always strikes me when, when you get the denouement of that um, relationship, that that's the real romance novel that she wrote. Whereas I think that sometimes when people describe the rest of her novels as romances, I think, mm, maybe. But with Persuasion, I, I really feel the romance is, is really central there. I wanted to debunk some myths about Jane Austen in this time because I think that we have a public perception of Jane that is very out of step perhaps hmm. with what she was. So the, the the myth that kind of really annoys me is that Jane Austen was this little woman who was very shy and quiet and retiring and didn't want anyone to know about her writing and you know we have this image of her sitting in her room and writing and covering it up when somebody came in but in reality as, as, as Austen scholars have shown over the past kind of 30 years, she was really very interested in the kind of commercial value of her writing, in earning money, in putting herself out there as a, as a serious writer. Well, well that image is, is, is a product, isn't it, of, of her the family. family. Yeah. The, the family didn't like the idea of having this ambitious yes. woman... Who wanted money. Who wanted money, yeah. who was publicly courting commercial... Um, success uh, and 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 a, a public identity at a time when, as, as we see in her novels, the idea of being public, yes, being a public figure is something which um, can potentially attract scan, scandal not only to her but to the family as a whole. So yeah. you know, it's it, that that's what we're up against, isn't it? That, yeah. that very self-consciously constructed myth, yes, from the family against what we can uncover about the real Jane and about... Yes. 
and it's wonderful how many resources there are despite you know although yeah. there although there are limits yes um there's still lots of evidence about that well yeah and more so than the texts yeah that's right and i mean even that image of her as a very kind of decorous writer you know interested in kind of being polite in the social world if you read if you if you read her novels carefully as you say and certainly if you read her letters there's this acerbic wit mm. and this real um, understanding of the world and the nitty gritty and the dirt of, and the grit of the world that she lives in that really cuts against that dear Aunt Jane image which as you say is entirely a product of her posthumous kind of her family's um, attempt to manage her posthumous reputation it, it elides the kind of real um, savage humour mm. that she that she mm. has I always think of that line in Persuasion when she's talking about um, the large fat signs of, yes. a, of her mother who had just lost her child and she's making fun of, of this of this mother because she's fat. You know, you don't expect that from this dear Aunt Jane image. So what are some myths do you want to debunk, Chair? Well, do you know what? One of the things that always galls me, I, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day and I happened to mention that I was throwing myself back into Jane Austen and I said, oh... Um, I've just started rereading Pride and Prejudice and I'm looking again at the, um, the BBC adaptation because I quite enjoy it. And being a man, he said to me, that must be torture! <laughs> <laughs> what a silly person. Yes. And there is this myth that Jane Austen only appeals to women. Yes. And that Jane Austen has nothing very much of interest to say to men. And I, I find that a very um, sad Mm. Um, idea to um, to be have such currency in, in the in the general public. Aside from anything else, um, as I've mentioned before, you know, I think that there is so much of Austen's work which speaks so um, deeply and so wittily about um, the issues that continue to mm. plague us in society today. Mm. Um, not the least of which relates to relationships between men and women and the way in which men and women are variously trapped and positioned by um, the various institutions that surround them in society. Um, and that for men to, I suppose, have this belief, or people to have the belief that there is nothing in that to mm. speak to men, to um, communicate something useful or meaningful to them um, is, is something that I, I, it's entirely untenable. Mm. Look, I mean, I, I think I just was because I was particularly struck um, by the the notion of writing and you know, sort of readership in terms of the the, the, the gendered idea of of, of, of reading. And, and so, because you're, I've got you both in the, the room, it's my opportunity to ask. <laughs> um, in terms of her, her the readership at her time. I mean, uh, is there a sense of the the, the, the demographic uh, of of her of because you know I, I think it's 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 interesting to sort of um, draw parallels between you know sort of I think a, a, a sort of a contemporary um, sort of reading scene where there is still this terrible sort of perception of writing as you know sort of only women's writing, which I actually think is because uh, you Jeff are, are just uh, like. Sort of Stephanie and I, a superior reader, <laughs> you know. We were more involved, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know, who, because you've Flash actually... Did, you know a, absolutely. Yeah. Be, because, you know, in, in, in essence, one of the things that I, I, I'm struck by is that women have had so many, you know, sort of um, such a long history of reading men's books as though they're just literature, 
that we've actually developed the skills required to read in that way, whereas me and Spiffle are hacking behind a little bit. <laughs> um, except for you, because you've had yes. so much. <laughs> Jeff accepted, um, and Jimmy, of course. Yeah, well, yes. of course, Jimmy, in the room. But, but, you, but you know, that I, I think that there's a, there's a, a sort of, um, you, I, I think that there's, a, there's a, a sort of a valency in terms of thinking through those, uh, yeah. you know, sort of those comparisons. So yeah, I mean, there's that broader concept of novels being primarily for women. When men read grown men, <laughs> serious people. They read serious books. They read yeah. serious books, yes. and so they should be interested in facts and in you know how to make money and how to uh, you know manage the world around them. And fiction doesn't have any of that stuff, supposedly. And so we don't worry about fiction. It's something that is um, either feminized or childish. Mm. Um, so there, there is that. And then the the way in which people insist upon gender division still and you know yeah. the, the idea that um, women primarily will be interested in what women have to say and men will primarily be interested in what men have to say mm. feeds in as well I, I mean it, it, I don't understand it yeah. <laughs> um, it it's not something that makes sense to me on any grounds of argument and certainly in the 18th century you, mm. you still had that. Um, and the early 19th century. Sorry, 18th century scholars, as Jeff will know, have this, this habit of referring to the 18th century as starting in like 1660 and ending in 1830. So I will use the 18th century we, we, in as like, broad as possible we application. Like to we like to stretch ourselves, yes. So in the 18th Somewhere century. Somewhere you can go back to the 1640s. Yeah, that's right. So in the long 18th century, there was certainly a notion that novels belonged to women, right? That, that novels were a, a specifically kind of feminine pursuit. But certainly both men and women read Jane Austen. Yeah. And we have many accounts of, of men like Walter Scott, um, Robert Browning, etc., reading Jane Austen. But so I don't think it was it was kind of ghettoized as you know only of women's interests. Certainly, men and women did did read novels, but there was still that kind of underlying sense that fiction um, and novel reading was something that silly women did because they weren't capable of reading, you know, serious nonfiction, serious history, serious political stuff. Um, so therefore, they were more drawn to fiction. So there was still that kind of um, broad divide, even though Jane Austen's readership certainly included lots of men, and I think lots of lots of men, forerunners of, of Geoffrey here, um, certainly appreciated Austen during her own time. Another myth that I kind of really irritates me is, you know, the old myth that you don't see so much in academic circles these days, but you do kind of broadly in the public kind of discourse around Jane Austen that Jane Austen didn't write about anything political, mm. that she only mm. wrote about, you know, relationships between men and women, marriage, courtship, romance, that her books don't engage with the Napoleonic Wars, don't engage with the political context of her time, don't engage with any kind of bigger issue, when that's patently nonsense. I mean, even in Pride and Prejudice, why are there so many militia around? Right, and, and the, the militia are an invading force. That's right. I mean, you know, they are in the village and throw everything into turmoil. Into disarray, into yeah. disarray and turmoil. Yeah. Um, something which is openly acknowledged by um, characters in the in the story. Yeah. Um, Lizzie herself sees it very plainly. And then, of course, Wickham's elopement with Lydia is, again, mm -hmm. another sort of instance of the way in which that does play out. But, of course, um, to return to persuasion as well. Yeah. Um, you know, it's all the, about the Navy. The, yeah. It's all about the Navy and about, um, you know, figures who whose lives are um, 
being shaped by those greater forces, th- th- those, I shouldn't say greater, those other yeah. larger political narratives around them. But I mean, to return to the issue, the very idea that writing about marriage and relationships is not political yeah, that's is, right. of exactly. course, something that has largely been, I suppose, debunked in yes. academic circles in, in the last um, 20, 30 years or so. Yeah. Um, political politics is all about the, um, the way in which power is distributed in social contexts. And so that idea about relations between the gender is something that uh, yeah. is at the heart of all of, all of our um, modes of social organisation, I guess. And nobody is better than unpacking power relationships within marriage mm. or within courtship than Jane Austen. You know, the, the absolute interest in, in the, the way that marriage throws up all of these ideas about gender and power and money, even, you know, moments like Lizzie declaring to, to um, Lady Catherine that um, Darcy's a gentleman and I'm a gentleman's daughter. I mean, that kind of, for us, we can just read that as, yeah, they're equal in this kind of, you know, a historic way. But um, at the time, for, for Elizabeth to kind of declare their equality when she is several rungs further down mm. on the class ladder than Darcy, who has, you know, this all of this immense wealth, um, is quite significant, quite politically loaded. So I think we tend to kind of um, if we read in this ahistoric kind of um, way where we see Jane Austen's focus without kind of looking at the politics, we can miss all those nuances. Mm. It, it, it's also a, a sort of tied, I think, to the way in which we're, we're, we're sort of shaped to, um, you know, sort of understand sort of the broad outline of, of, of a particular sort of uh, unilinear uh, progressive history and um, idea of progress and yeah. where you're all always sort of focused on, you, you know, that, that the outline of, 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 of sort of the, the more easily um, recognised um, markers of power, whereas yeah. in Austin what we get are the negotiations mm. that take place mm. in the way that people experience power. Mm. And I think, you know, sort of um, people... Or, or it's very easy as a, as a reader to create neat categories around. Well, you know, this is the story of you know sort of history, or this is you know this is what it means to talk about sort of um, the militia in a, yeah. in, a, in a real way. You know, without sort of having the the nuanced sort of skills to to realise that in, in many respects what Austin is doing is is, is unpacking the lived reality mm. of, of of these experiences as those who don't make it into, you know, the history books, who don't make it into that sort of really clearly defined bullet point history mm. um, might have experienced these things, which is always a distortion, you know, like mm. it's such a distortion to sort of understand any time according to a, a sort, of, sort of that 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 linear um, sort of bullet point history um, because of course you know none of us I think would feel particularly defined by I don't know Trump or you know yeah. we, do, you, do you know what I mean like it, I mean it's there in yeah. the background and and you know it, it, we are aware of how Trump I guess is symbolic of um, 
a general social condition or something like that. But there is no reason why one has to argue Focus for a particular on that. And the focusing of that is actually a, a sort of a reiteration and and a, 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 and a um, it's it's another form of erasing all of the other stuff that's going on. Which you know the work of scholars has done mm. so much to excavate, isn't, hasn't yeah. it? You know, like that. That's I mean, again, there, there are, you know, moments in Austin where she does clearly focus on issues. So, for instance, in Mansfield mm. Park, with the focus on um, the, the, families, the families' holdings in um, the Caribbean and their mm. slave holdings and what have you, and Fanny won't let it go. She keeps on yeah, raising keeps asking, it and, yeah. and asking the question. And, of course, it's not what the novel's about, but that question about where the family money comes from and... And where, because Mansfield Park is a book which is about um, how the place itself fits into the broader social strata, um, the fact the fact of the matter is that Mansfield Park is built upon the the relationship between Britain and her colonial others, and so Fanny is deliberately asking questions about those things makes the book. Political, political mm. in in that really overt sense, but then even in, in 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 books that are not so overtly political. So Emma, for instance, is one of those books where you tend to think, all right, you know what? There's not a hell of a lot political going on here, but there's all that stuff about social duty and yes. about you know the the landlord's duty to yes. um, their people, and enclosure to the estate, and well. enclosure. Yeah. Um, the relations between the upper classes and the people on the lower lungs. Responsibility. Lower lungs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Lower rungs. Um, You know, how can Emma maintain a relationship with Harriet Smith if she marries a farmer because he is that much lower down, although not so low down that she can then give attention in the way of charity? And Um, also that's what makes the the slight at Miss Bates so appalling because she's completely disempowered as a single poor woman. And Mr Knightley's critique of Frank Churchill yes. is all, you know, based upon these ideas of, you know, how his actions are entirely thoughtless in terms of that the way in which what he does has an impact on the wider world around them. Mm. And and the novels, I suppose, um, building up of Knightley as yes. a figure also rests similarly on the fact that for whatever flaws he has personally he is very attentive to social duty and he fulfills, um, in a way that few Austin men do, yeah. um, the role of the benevolent patriarch yeah. um, you know, very well. And so, you know, that, that, and, and, and so again, to, to, to bring in that idea of the patriarchy and the, the way in which the patriarchy in general f- affects the people who are living underneath it, uh, under under the strictures of, of a patriarchal system is another really strong political thread that runs throughout all the novels. Mm. Um, the entailment in Pride and Prejudice yeah. is a chief motivating factor. Mm. Um, the fact that Mr Bennett has been unable to be a vigorous patriarch and father a son mm-hmm. creates a problem that then has to be resolved in different yeah. ways. And that makes the book much more interesting because then when you look at Mrs. Bennett, who is very easy to kind of write her off as this ridiculous mother who's very embarrassing, but when you look at Mrs. Bennett and you look at the situation that she's in with her five daughters, mm-hmm. she's entirely correct to be very worried about who they're going to marry because what is going to happen to right. the Bennett if, if Mrs. If Bennett does married, die, yeah. and she keeps on pointing this out, they're screwed. They're, they're homeless. <laughs> they're homeless. They have they no have money at all. They have very little money to live yeah. I mean, you know, 
not enough for five she women. She wouldn't have, they wouldn't be able to have the servants. Yes. Somebody might have to work. So, you know, we need to put it into perspective. Yeah, oh, I know. <laughs> I know. But even still, they are, for, I mean, there is no social safety net. They can't, you know, because, they might. I mean, what, essentially what would happen, they would be in the same position as um, Intense and Sensibility, Eleanor and... And Marianne. Marianne. Yeah. They would be homeless to that extent. So they have family who... Mr. Gardner would essentially be forced to provide for them, and he's already doing that a little bit. Yeah, but they would be in very, very straitened circumstances. And they may have to work, which, you know, sounds like, you know, they may have to work, but how is that, how, you know, how bad is that? But (laughs) if you, if you think about, but if you think about job options for women at the time, they're very, very small, um, and they, they're often, you know, as, as we see in Emma, governessing is not at all a attractive option, you know, governessing no. is, is um, referred to as the sale of the intellect in, in Emma, as if it's a kind of form of slavery. So it's not, you know, it's not like women have all of these options for and the you careers. And in a later period, like in, when in Jane Eyre, we see the governess yes. as, you know, being essentially the, the prostitute, the public... Yeah, that's the, right. ...the figure who sells herself in the public market. And, and, and a, prey, a prey, really, for the, for the um, patriarch of the household. Hmm. So, you know, it's not like... Mrs. Bennett's not entirely wrong to really be concerned about her daughters and who they're going to marry. I mean, even in Jane Austen's own life, she was a an unmarried woman. And so the reason she had a house is because her, her brother allowed her to live on in a house on his estate. So, you know, she was entirely dependent. She later earned some money through writing, but it wasn't enough to sustain, you know, her, her sister, her mother. Um, so she was dependent on her brother. The Bennett sisters don't have a brother to help them out. So if you look at, at, at the kind of economic realities of Jane Austen, that throws Miss, Mrs. Bennet into a different light, and Mr. Bennet as well, because Mr. Bennet doesn't really do much for his daughters. He's let them kind of run riot. And so if you look at, at Lydia and what happens to her, Mr. Bennet is somewhat culpable for that, because he's just well, washed his hands of his family. And even further back, you see, I mean, the novel implicitly is critical of him in his choice of a, of a wife. Exactly. He has not made a good selection of somebody who would be a good mother. Yeah, he's he's just selected um, a pretty girl. A pretty girl. He's yeah. he's essentially done the the thing that Darcy is upbraiding himself for doing yeah. in proposing to Livy. He's 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 married the wrong girl, um, and and so therefore produced a mother who is um, apparently as crass crass as as what Mrs. Bennet appears. Mm. Um, you know, I think we're allowed to to view Mrs. Bennet in other ways by the mm. novel. Yeah, um, I think that it, I think that the novel is sophisticated enough absolutely. to allow us yeah. insight into those, those other characters. Mr. Collins too. Yeah. Um, you know, he's very badly treated by the novel's close alignment with Lizzie's mm. um, viewpoint, even though it never actually wholly occupies that viewpoint. Mm. Well, I've forgotten the point I was making that step. Where was that? I don't know where you were going with that, but it was very <laughs> interesting know. anyway. Jane. Look, it was absolutely fascinating. And, and I think also, you know, it's, it's also the way that uh, in, in many respects, uh, you know, yes, you know, we, we've, we've got uh, sort of marauding militia, we've got this, we've got, you know, sort of plantations and all of these sorts of things. And, and you know, we've got someone who's perceptive enough to understand that in many respects um, marriage is both the glue you know, that holds society together, but it's also subversive because it allows, you know, sort of bonds between, you know, sort of where you may not necessarily mm-hmm. uh, expect them. And perhaps that's part of, you know, sort of it, it, it's the 
um, it's the garnering of all of those forces mm. from a properly cognizant writer who manages to make you know sort of what might seem to be the most simple of plots the marriage plot yeah. into something that is you know sort of utterly um, you know sort of a, a, a force to be reckoned with well there's um, that famous moment that is written about in in the biographies of, of Jane Austen um, that her that her family kind of commissioned and wrote after her death where she talks she says something a throwaway line like you know three to four families in a country village is just a thing to write on and that's been kind of interpreted in a kind of surface level oh she was only interested in writing about you know three or four families and their various going on yeah provincial english kind of domestic english heartland yeah but i think okay firstly i think she's been facetious there (laughs) and um people miss the the real biting humor of, of austin but also what she does with when she does focus on the family is throw up all these ideas about money about um politics of power the politics between of marriage the politics of courtship and um where all of these kind of social forces intersect and so i think people kind of write not necessarily write her off but they take that statement at face value without interrogating what it actually means and when you look really closely at austin's work these i you know the the interactions of families yes might be going on in the surface but what's actually going on is all these kind of detailed workings through of how society works and you know I, the, the moment that kind of strikes me is this is very political that people overlook in um, Northanger Abbey so um, Henry Tilney has just figured out what Catherine Morland thinks about his father mm. she's, she's, she's concocted in her head this idea that um, that Henry Tilney's father has killed Henry Tilney's mother and, and Henry's you know upbraiding her because of this and he says you know, how could such a thing happen in England when, when we have this neighbourhood of voluntary spies that monitor each other's behaviour? And people take that as on its face value as like, well, Henry thinks she's, you know, silly and she's being silly. But what's really going on there is they're talking, she's talking about the increased surveillance culture in the 1790s um, in a time of real anxiety about the effect of the French Revolution. Um, it's also not meant, I think, to be taken quite seriously because is Henry Tilney seriously saying no murder happens in England well and what's more he's wrong in exactly fact about General Tilney like he's he's, he's completely he's right in the particulars that he hasn't murdered murdered yeah. his wife but he's wrong in not recognizing him as the gothic villain yes which he is which he demonstrates when he turns, he turns, um, he turns Catherine, Catherine out of the, out yeah. of the house um in breach of all of the rules of decorum yeah. and social propriety yeah. Um, upon learning that she's not the heiress that he thought that she was, yeah. and so therefore no longer a suitable match. Um, and, and unwittingly, Henry Tilney is also um, inscribing England as the very kind of Gothic landscape that he's trying to yes. denigrate. Yes. He's saying to to Catherine, what are you talking about? How We're not living in a Gothic novel. We've got a community of voluntary spies. Yeah. Okay, all of a sudden we're just shifting into a different kind of Gothic narrative. We live in a surveillance culture. <laughs> a surveillance Yay. culture. Yay. Yeah. Where there is no individual privacy or no, yeah. everybody is entirely aware all the time of everything that's going on. Yeah, and monitoring um, and, and regulating behaviours. Yeah, welcome to yeah. 1984. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it's a statement. This is what I mean about Jane Austen being read on multiple levels. You know, you can read that and go, well, she's wrong. He isn't a murderer. Henry Tilney's right, etc. And that's a very simplistic reading of a novel. But then you can read it as as Jeff has been suggesting, as 
entirely wrong-headed because he's wrong about General Tilney. General Tilney has actually caused the death of his wife, just not through murdering her, but through kind of beating her down and bullying her, basically, um, into an early grave. And, and he is the villain of the piece, but just not in the way that Catherine has kind of anticipated. She's overly literalised. Yeah. And so it's a satire on people who overly literalise the fictional yeah. plot. But it's also a satire on people who can't see how such fictional plots can have broader general application. That's right, exactly. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, that's one of the wonderful things about most of Austen's novels is the satire always cuts in multiple directions. Yeah. It's, never, it's never simply just one satirical target. It's always yeah. broad spectrum, um, lots of different positions, including of itself. It, it's yeah. very self-consciously satirical. Itself. I mean, one of my one of the lines that to me speaks most strongly of Austen is from Pride and Prejudice again with Mr Bennett's um, what do we exist for but to laugh at our neighbours or to provide sport for our neighbours and to laugh at them in turn. Yes. Um, yeah. That's James. Yeah, I know. I, I just, I think that she would be the, the greatest dinner party guest yeah. because she would make fun of everybody and then make fun of you and then make fun of herself. Um, it would just be, every line would be tongue in cheek. So I'm interested in your favourite Jane Austen novels. So Jeff, your favourite Jane Austen novel. Oh, you, it's a very hard you, question. You warned me you were going to ask this. I know. I, I've been running through. I gave all you of more than 24 hours to think you about did, this. You did, Steph. And do you know what? Um, it's actually Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. Um, only in terms of the fact that it's the one that I, I most often do go back and read. Um, I teach it fairly frequently, which is part of the reason. Um, but I just I just love the character. I love the minor characters. Mm. Um, much as, you know, I enjoyed Lizzie's wit and what have you, I love Mrs. Bennet. I think mm-hmm. she's fantastic. Um, I love Mr. Collins. What a, what a brilliantly drawn character. Mm-hmm. Um, even really minor characters, Mr. Hurst. Mm-hmm. Um, always asleep. Always asleep. Brilliant. But, and, and she is as you've said before, able in a line mm-hmm. to give such depth to those minor characters um, and to draw them so brilliantly and vibrantly um, in a way that you wouldn't expect, that you mm. would expect them to be quite flat characters, caricatures, what have mm-hmm. you, and yet they have a depth to them. They, ha- they have um, a, a lot more going on in them. Um, and I also, I suppose, like the way in which that novel, and I think it's true of all of the novels, but it, it comes out very strongly in that novel. The way in which, at the same time as it, it kind of does cause that mar- marriage plot, it problematizes it, mm. and it it brings up um, so brilliantly the problems that the social problems that revolve around being a single woman mm. in the society that they live in, the the threat that the single woman poses. Um, the way in which she is threatened and beset on all sides, um, the way in which she is unable to have solitude, um, being interested in, in solitude in, in, in the literature of the period. I'm very interested in, in the way in which, um, even in their most solitary moments, the women in Pride and Prejudice can be invaded from in valid ways by all all kinds of different um, characters. Like poor Mrs. Collins trying to, to, to um, grab a moment right. without Mr. Collins and she has to kind of sit in this room and kind of, that he she knows that he doesn't like. 
Um, so she can grab this moment of solitude from her appalling husband. But 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 even then, even, even then, then she is like she to be she at, at the the moment that Lady Catherine drives past in a carriage, she can be called outside yeah, and right. made to wait 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 upon her, do her do her social duty. Yeah. Um. And, and so you know that that complexity of, of characterization yeah. in there and the, the subtlety of depiction. I think you know just. I think Pride and Prejudice is a good solid choice. Michelle? Look, I, I have to say I'm, I'm with Fred. I, I just, you know, because I, I, I thought about it too, and, you know, I thought Madison Park and Persuasion. Yeah. You know, I was going to make the case for Persuasion. Yeah. Look, 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 you know, I, you, and I Don't worry, I'm going to say one that's sh- going to be shocking. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. Um, but do you know what I think it was about Pride and Prejudice? I mean, it was the one that I read first. You mm. know, it's the first, it was on our bookcase when I was 12, and I remember taking it down and reading it. So, of course... It's imbued with that, you know, sort of first Austen um, aura. But I actually think it was, and it's the one that I've gone back to and I've reread, but it's also the one that I always find the characters are so flawed, you know, and I loved that. And and Mm. I think that, you know, sort of as as a 12-year-old, I I loved, you know, sort of the, 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 the inappropriate moments, the moments when... You know, sort of your, your the when when things went wrong, when things when people didn't behave the way they should, where you could so clearly you know sort of see what the right thing was to do, and yet it didn't happen. Um, that anchored me to the page, and it, it sort of had me you know sort of needing to plow and read and 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 read hungrily. I think the, out of all of Austen's, that was the one that I. Um, read with the most hunger, I think, and with the. With, um, I mean, I think that that argument about being the first one in Canada. I, I'm sure Pride and Prejudice yeah. was also the first Austin novel that I yeah, read. Yeah, the as first well. Austin novel. And, and so you know, there there is nostalgia, nostalgia, yeah. nostalgia. Um, yeah, um, and and it is. It's the first imprint, isn't it? It's on on that mind, and it's the first. And so everything that else style. that you read is then compared with yeah that. First the intensity one. of that first reading, yeah. and and I just remember the intensity, and you know, sort of the, the, my my frustration as a reader, and and then of course you know the denouement where it's um, where we, where the relief is enough that makes you almost want to go back to the beginning yeah. straight away. Um, so yeah, no, pride, pride and prejudice. Well, I picked, I cheated, and I'm going to mention two. <laughs> Um, because, look, Jane Austen's my girl, so I'm allowed. <laughs> um, so I think her greatest novel is Emma. Mm. Um, I think that's the novel in which um, all of her particular skills as a novelist um, coalesce to their greatest extent. I think it's so clever the way she works in the motif of games and secrets and um, the the games that the di- different characters are playing between um, between themselves, the secrets that some characters have access to and some don't, the close the really, really close attention that that novel plays to Emma herself so that we only know what Emma knows and we don't... We we guess at what Emma doesn't know, but we don't have that information. I think she, it's a really masterfully constructed novel. Um, and every time I read it, I just get that sense that I always do when I read Austen, which is, God, Austen was so smart. Like, this is a really first first-class intelligence putting together all these puzzle pieces into that novel. So I think that's her best novel. But the novel, the novel that really that I kind of hold most fondly is Northanger Abbey, um, mm. because it's really funny. Yeah, like it's. I think it's a most purely <laughs> funny book, and I love funny, and it's really closer in sort of spirit and tone to her Juvenilia. Mm. Um, and if you haven't read her Juvenilia, it's very it's it's recognisably Austen, 
but it's also quite. No, I thought you were going to say Lady Susan. I thought yeah. you were going to be really provocative. Yeah, no, I was. <laughs> I was going to mention Lady Susan, but I thought I'd go look. Nothing, Rabbi owns the heart. What can I say? But Austin's juvenilia is very kind of gritty and a little bit kind of um, more kind of dirty around the edges than her kind of more um, her not the works that were written in the nineteenth century, in the early decades of the nineteenth century. So her juvenilia There's a rawness is, to them. Yeah, they're very raw. They're yeah. very kind of um, and they're also and, and over things. overblown caricature. Yeah, they're, they're caricatures. They're they're. Um, Mass, like really, really heavy parody. They're really, really satirical. They're really funny. They're really boisterous. They're also about subjects that you don't kind of expect to see in Austin. You know, drunk, young lady, drunk people. Yeah, um, you know, lots of lots of scandal. Um, you got love and friendship, which I think is the most madcap thing I've ever read. With you know characters going around, you know, fainting and stealing things and etc etc so there's a kind of raw edginess to her juvenilia that I really like which I suppose is a result of it being written in the 18th century proper um, Mm -hmm. which was a bit more of a kind of raw period in terms of what you could get away with writing about than the early years of the 19th century so Northanger Abbey which is started in the 1790s and then published actually posthumously um, and has a kind of really complex publication history is a bit closer in spirit to the juvenilia, which I really like. It's very, very satirical, very parodic. It's also deeply engaged with the literature of her time. And so a lot of the work that I've done, the research that I've done around Jane Austen has been about like her, her forerunners, her literary forerunners, the women writers who came before her. And here she deals with them very directly. In, in Northanger Abbey, she's mm. talking about Anne Radcliffe. She talks about Fanny Burney. She talks about Mariah Edgeworth, etc., so I like that kind of engagement with the literary culture of her time. I think Catherine Morland is hysterically funny. Um, I think Henry Tilney is wonderful. Um, who doesn't love a guy who will just, like, make fun of the, the heroine to her face, like, in this pleasing, <coughs> loving manner throughout the whole novel? I just love it. it just, uh, his it, performance, the, the first of the dance, at the yes, where, where, where he satirises the, the forms... Yes. that they must go through at the same time as performing. So yes. he performs his He's social so clever. duties. Yeah. He does everything by the book, and yet he laughs at it at the same time. Exactly. And then he talks um, about Muslims. Yes. Who doesn't love a guy who can talk about Muslims? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I, it's just always struck me as, as kind of... The, Jane Austen is her most, at, at her most exuberant. And again, I think it's a real kind of... It has within it that, that wonderful vindication of the novel where, you know, Austen declares, oh, it is only a novel, it is only the form in which the greatest powers of the human mind are displayed, etc. Yeah. So there's this really tongue-in-cheek kind of declaration of love for the novel, which is not, an, if that's a political statement in and of itself, considering the kind of literary cultural value of the novel at the time. Um, so it, it's this beautiful celebration of the novel. It's also a wonderful parody of the Gothic novel, but at the same time it's a celebration of the Gothic novel in ways that, as we were saying before, um, people don't get because people just think, oh, you know, Jane Austen hated the Gothic, but in fact, it's a be- it's a wonderful celebration of the Gothic and instantiation of it. Yeah, that's right. It is a Gothic novel. Yes. Yeah. So she's she's so clever because she can do all these things at the same time, and so that novel has always kind of spoken to me and my kind of research interests, I suppose, um, because it's just so funny. I love it and the more you read of other novels of the period so I remember reading Charlotte Smith's Emmeline a novel written in 1788 I think and um, the opening chapter is all about how this heroine has lived by herself you know 
on this basically on a mountain, um, and yet has every accomplishment that you can possibly imagine. And then you read the first, the introduction to Catherine Morland in Northanger Abbey, where she says, oh, well, she has no accomplishments. <laughs> you know, she's she's not very good at anything, really, and um, she's, she's kind of a really bad heroine. And then you get that section more, because what Jane Austen is doing there is satirising this idea of the intensely accomplished 18th century heroine, who somehow is perfect at everything, who has managed to pick up every acquirement somehow, who is, you know, a master of 15 languages somehow, is a wonderful dancer somehow, you know, and has somehow managed to kind of take on all of these acquirements in situations where they couldn't possibly have come into contact with all of these things. And so when you read something like Charlotte Smith and then you read Jane Austen, you're like, okay, she's directly parodying this other novel. And if I hadn't read that other novel, I would have missed that completely. So it's a novel that kind of grows in complexity. The more other stuff you've read of mm. the period, mm. and then you just realise how well-read Austen is and how clever she is. I'm really waxing lyrical now, but <laughs> I think it's a wonderful novel. All right. Um, I think that's all we have time for today. I'm sorry for going on about Northanger Abbey at length, but do I really love it. Do not apologise because you can... No, no, no. Never apologise for Northanger Abbey. No. No, or Jane Austen. I or mean, Jane Austen rocks, in general. Yes. I have a T-shirt that says Jane Austen is my home girl. And unfortunately, it's too cold to wear it today. <laughs> but um, I'm wearing it in spirit. All right. Thank you, Jeff, for joining us today. Most, most welcome. My pleasure. And thank you, Michelle, as per usual. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, and once again, I would ask that our lovely viewers out there take it, the, their time out of their day to rate and review us on iTunes because that's really quite useful in helping other people find the podcast and um, we're really delighted with the numbers of you that are listening but there could always be more um, so that would be wonderful and please send us any feedback you have about the show any ideas for future episodes if you really want to hear our thoughts on your favorite novel then send us a line and we'll probably read your favorite novel and talk about it um, thanks also to Jimmy for his wonderful producing work as usual uh, we'll see you again in two weeks this has been from the lighthouse